a very exciting week here on the OHL podcast, and not just because we are that much closer to the OHL playoffs. There's a log jam in the West. We'll see who ends up where, because it looks like five positions are still kind of available. And your emails are starting to pour in. We love to hear them. OHLpodcast at rogers.com. Good, bad, or otherwise, send us an email anytime. And thanks to Joe and Jonathan for doing just that. We'll get to your emails before the end of the show. My name is Mike Farwell on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. You'll find him on Twitter at Dan Mahar. And we decided, because we go back and forth on this, how we're going to tackle this week's issues. We decided we would start with the Guelph Storm. And Dan, I think there's good reason because the Guelph Storm, despite their most recent game, an absolute whooping at the hands of the Flint Firebirds. They got shellacked 10 to three in Flint on the weekend, but that marked just the storm's 13th regulation loss since mid November. You go back to November the 18th and you find a Guelph storm team that is 26, 13 and two coincidentally, because I'm not going to connect this it's just a coincidence that streak began the day after they traded Sasha Pastajov to Sarnia and got Max Nemesnikov in return. I'm not saying Pastajov was a problem. I'm just saying that trade was made and the storm, for whatever reason, have been running at an incredible clip since that time. Yeah, Guelph. So I will take this opportunity, Mike, to point out that I had chosen Guelph to win this conference. So <laughs> So I'm moving, I'm moving slightly from idiot back into all right, all right. So on this one, but yeah, I think you gotta really tip your cap to Chad Wiseman here. I mean, he was put in a tough situation at the start of the year. We all know with uh, Scott Walker's health issues, had to step back, uh, put Chad in a position where he had to pick up the reins. Maybe hadn't had as much opportunity to, to prep as he as he would have liked team got off to an awful start i mean i was as critical of them as anyone i did not know what was going on there saw a bit of a disorganized mess the the results were not matching the talent on paper team sold like you mentioned Pastajov gone jilkin gone they they were expecting to kind of take a bow this year and 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 come back next year but wiseman and his staff have really figured this out and the guelph storm looked nothing like they did in in october and that's that's a great thing so tip the cap to him but especially the kids as well and we're seeing it across the league where some of these teams were sellers and sell men step it up now because they've actually gotten better since since selling and, and it's it just continues this bizarre year we're seeing mike but guelph back from the dead so you mentioned Pastajoff, Jolkin, also Jacob Oster, who just, and I think this is why I'm going to say again, all coincidentally, I'm not saying any of these players represented some sort of problem, but you look at what's happened since Oster goes off to Oshawa in exchange for Patrick Lever. Oster gets his first career shutout as a member of the Oshawa Generals. Danny Jolkin certainly seems to be finding a nice home in Kitchener, had a four game goal scoring streak just coming into this weekend when it was snapped on Saturday in Owen Sound. And the aforementioned Sasha Pastajoff. Look, I don't think you can argue with the numbers. Pastajoff had 19 points in 14 games with the Storm. He's got 66 points in 37 games in Sarnia. So that guy continues to produce at an even better rate. On Max Nemesnikov, he certainly has turned it around since getting to Guelph. He had seven points in 18 games with the Sting. He's got 43 points in 39 games with the Guelph Storm. But I'm with you when it comes to Chad Wiseman. I think you got to give this guy 
a lot of credit and for the way he has helped this team kind of find its identity, turn it around again. Just consider that 26, 13 and two since November the 18th. And I'm looking at the storm as the team that might just snag that fourth and final home ice playoff spot in the Western conference, given the way that they're playing. But maybe we have to give a nod here too, to the guy I like to call trader George, George Burnett has never been shy about making a move. When you saw the passage off for Nemesnikov deal, a lot of us looked at it and thought, okay, kind of, you know, scoring value for scoring value, but maybe you, you know, the change of scenery certainly seems to have helped Max Nemesnikov's game. Oster for Lever. Okay. Right. And then Jilkin, of course, just to move because he's not coming back next year and you can kind of restock that cupboard. But you look, I think I think Cam Allen's game has come around. I think Michael Bushinger has been a real good story. And then we can go on from there. Cooper Walker's been great. Matthew Poitras has been great. The, the Guelph Storm. And let's remember, before they went on this run, they were four, twelve, two and one. A dismal start to the season. So that's a pretty remarkable turnaround. Yeah, and there was a lot of factors at play. You just mentioned a bunch of names. I'd throw in uh, Carabella and Bowman, and there's a lot of skill on that team, which is why I was so high on them before the year. And you look at that goaltender trade, Mike, and maybe just the classic change of scenery thing, right? I don't, I don't think anyone said either of those two guys was going to make be a huge difference maker on the, the, their new team. But let's face it, a call a spade a spade. Earlier in the year, the Guelph Storm were not getting a save, and I'm not throwing Oster under the bus here. He's been excellent since he's gotten to Oshawa and turned things around. So maybe just a change of scenery was needed there. Uh, so that that was a huge bonus for them. But I think we talked about this in previous pods about these other factors that happen off ice and things that kind of mess with your, your team a little bit off ice. And, you know, not having the coaching situation, having a few players move, uh, these things kind of take some time to settle out. And I think we all knew that there was some talent on that Guelph storm. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, Cam Allen, Michael Bushinger. They're two big weapons on the D there that that didn't have the start they wanted, particularly Allen. And now are starting to round their game out. And, and like you said, Mike, I don't think that's a team that anyone's really anxious to face in the playoffs. You know, I think I might've undersold them by a game too. I think they went 27, 13 and two, because they got a win against the Sioux. I think of that because you mentioned Michael Bushinger and he had the two goals, including the overtime winner that gave Guelph their 26. So let me take that one back. 27, 13 and two since November the 18th for the Guelph storm. If I've got that right, either way, uh, Bushinger, the day he got those two goals was also the day that it was announced. He signed with the St. Louis blues, one of four players in this past week. So we should give him a shout out for that signing the entry level contract. And since we have a whole bunch of potpourri to kind of mix into this week's podcast around our bigger topics, let's just stay with the Western Conference for a moment here. Uh, start with what you said about picking the Guelph Storm to win this conference, which you weren't alone in doing. They're not going to do that. And if they were to win the conference, they would have won the Midwest division as well. They certainly are not doing that because the London Knights have done it for the fourth consecutive year and let me just throw a couple more numbers at you the london knights won back-to-back division titles in 2012 and 2013 and then they kind of went quiet division wise until they won again in 2019 that began the four in a row that they have now won give london by my math 12 midwest division titles and 15 titles division titles 
overall. That is some kind of powerhouse. Yeah, you know, Mike, it's really ridiculous. And say what you will about the London Knights, uh, that's impressive to do it that many times in a cyclical world like junior hockey. But the ridiculous thing about it, too, is you look this year, Mike, they they didn't even go all in. The Hunters kind of looked at this team and thought, no, no, it's not. This isn't our year. Made the big move to get Dickinson, figuring like we're, we're a couple years out. Didn't go all in at the deadline. I mean, they, sure enough, they add, they added Winterton and, and they Humphrey and they added a couple pieces to help the team because they're playing so well. But they're still, it's a measured response this year saying, oh, this probably isn't a contention year. So we're, we're going to do things a little bit quieter this year. And quieter in London still means a division title. So <laughs> ridiculous. On the other side of the league, the Ottawa 67s are the first team to clinch their division. And they have done it. Don't look now, but the Ottawa 67s, a team that I identified a couple of years ago as the team that I thought got hurt the worst by the COVID shutdown because they were on a beeline towards what looked like an OHL championship after having made a run the year before. Others have said, yeah, you know, Oshawa, yeah, yeah, Peterborough, oh, yeah, Saginaw. Either way, the Ottawa 67s with their East Division title this year have now won 18 total in franchise history, but three in the past four years. So have we got, you know, juggernauts here on both sides of the league right now? Yeah, I think I think so. Uh, what you have a bit, a bit of a double-edged sword there too with those teams where when you have that success, you have a track record for development and good fan bases and whatnot. Kids want to play there and that every season that gets you one or two extra bodies that might not have reported elsewhere, might not have been available to other teams. And that just compounds the uh the challenge of unseating those teams so but you have to give them credit because you got a team like ottawa who's just year over year in contention and similar to london they were in a very similar situation to london this year where they weren't supposed to be there this year they were supposed to be behind those big guns in the in the east and saw how things went in the first bit and they did buy they did go a little more all in with a couple of their moves with logan morris and pavel minchikov so again they're arriving early because they're always there they're always in contention and that's why when you're doing those preseason predictions track record of the franchise is probably the most important factor so congratulations to the east division champion ottawa 67s third in four years congratulations to the midwest division champion london knights that's four straight division titles for the knights and we also had another team clinch this week so there had been six three on each side uh, Windsor, London, Sarnia in the west, Ottawa, North Bay, Barrie in the east. You can add to that thanks to a win on Sunday in Kingston. The Saginaw Spirit have now clinched a playoff spot. So seven teams total of the 16 that will make the playoffs. By the way, speaking of Saginaw, we should shout out Cambridge native and Spirit, I was going to say Sting for a second, Spirit goaltender Tristan Lennox, who signed his ELC this week with the New York Islanders. But Saginaw still holding down fourth in the West and kind of sort of, sort of, kind of starting to level things off. Remember after the trade deadline, not long after we talked about their dismal losing streak, I think it went nine in a row they lost, one before the deadline, eight after. You mentioned the Pavel Minchikov trade to Ottawa, which certainly has helped the 67s, but Saginaw has kind of sorted things out since then. They've got wins in six of their past 10 and points in seven, the latest team to clinch a playoff spot. Yeah, and full credit to them because, Mike, you look at these teams, the number one factor I look for is when things are in disarray or not going well, who's improving? Who's who's taking steps in the right direction? 
And you threw that team into a bit of disarray at the trade deadline by trading their best player. And the obvious, the early results were, were what you'd expect after that. But they figured it out, much like we talked about with Guelph. Piece things back together, and now they're rolling in the right direction again. You've always got to tip your cap to teams that do that, coaching staffs that do that, groups of players that do that. Because not everyone does, Mike. Not everyone gets it back on track. And and that's the number one factor in terms of determining the quality of an organization is do they have the people in place to do that? Do they have pride and can they do that? So Saginaw's got an X beside their name today because they could do that. And, and that's credit to them. Hunter Haight acquired by the Saginaw Spirit this year will be a really nice piece for their Memorial Cup run next year. Got him from Barry. He signs his entry-level contract with the Minnesota Wild. And just while we're on that, we should just mention Gavin White too. Throw him in there. The other player I mentioned, there were four that signed their contracts this past week. Gavin White of the Peterborough Peets has signed with the Dallas Stars. So looking good with the players. I guess it was signing week in the National Hockey League. Okay, before we move away from this, do you want to take a stab at this Western Conference, Dan? We were just talking about Saginaw now clinching. Saginaw's in fourth place right now with 68 points in the Western Conference. The eighth place team in the Western Conference is the Kitchener Rangers with 60 points. So you've got four, five, six, seven, and eight. Those are the five teams all bunched up by just eight points between them and anywhere from eight to 10 games left to play. What a log jam. And frankly, still opportunity here for every one of those teams mathematically to make some noise. Yeah, it, and there's a few games in hand there, depending on the team you're speaking of. I know that eighth-place team, Kitchener, has a couple games in hand on a lot of those competitors, and the Owen Sound attack are kind of struggling right now, so you never know if they're going to slip a few spots. But the motivation amongst all of those teams to get into the 4-5 slots has to be huge. No one wants London, Windsor, or Sarnia, so there's a huge reward to get into those 4-5 slots, and theoretically every team can do it. And you look at that Kitchener-Guelph, uh, they've got a couple games head-to-head, uh, Kitchener three points back at Guelph with two games in hand. So those will go a long way to determining which of those, if either of those teams wins both those games, they're a good bet to be in the four or five slots. Uh, if they split them, it's anyone's guess. So I, I won't take a stab, Mike, in terms of saying who's going to get those slots. Obviously Saginaw's got the inside track, but of the other four, it's pretty much anyone's game right now, but I wouldn't bet against any of them. Really. I think they all got, they all have a good shot and those head to heads would be the big factor. I'm with you 100%. I can't add a thing to that. Obviously, the four or five are the coveted spots for the reasons that you mentioned. You want to stay away from that three-headed monster if you can in Windsor, London, Sarnia. Owen Sound is the team. That's the other thing that's interesting about this. Owen Sound's the team amongst those five that's struggling the most. The Firebirds have won four in a row as we have this conversation. So they're starting to play well. We already talked about Saginaw. The Rangers have points in nine out of their past 11 games. The Guelph Storm, we already went on and talked about at some length. So your guess is as good as mine, but we know where the teams obviously would like to finish. So I won't spend any more time on that. We, we do have another interesting thing in the Midwest division with the Erie Otters, but we'll get to that a little bit later in this episode of the OHL podcast. Right now, let's let's change gears and turn our attention to something that I've been hearing a lot about from fans. And frankly, as a fan of the game, like I, I admit, I'll be the first to admit how lucky I am to be working in the game and getting to broadcast these games, not to mention getting all the good media room food, but I'm a fan of the game first and foremost. And I'm kind of with the fans in the frustration that gets expressed over video review and the length of time it's taking us 
to get an answer on those reviews. I'm not so naive as to think that we're going to take technology and reviews out of the game, although I would still argue for it. I know I would be wasting my breath, but I would waste that breath because I don't love it. It's game played by humans. Let's allow the humans to make mistakes from time to time. But anyway, video reviews seem to be taking a longer time than we would like in some rinks. It's got some fans frustrated. What are your thoughts generally on the issue? Well, Mike, first and foremost, my thing is get it right. So I'm probably a little more patient than the average person from what I'm hearing in terms of uh, I'll wait the extra 30, 40 seconds if it means they get the call right. Having said that, there are reasonable limits to everyone's patience and to the amount of time you want to wait at a game for a call, especially when it appears to be obvious. You see three or four camera angles and all look show the same thing. So you got to wonder, but I think there's a lot of factors that go into it too. And fans like to get on the the referees or or the guy with the iPad. We don't really know what, what's transpiring down there. So I, I think there are probably ways to expedite this. We like to think everyone's working at their best clip to get that quickly. Uh, but having said that, I always come back to the, the get it right. I'll, I'll take a little bit of a delay if it, if it means getting it right. Yeah, and that's the idea here. But I always think back to, if I'm not mistaken, the first league that started doing this was the National Football League, right? And they had the famous under the hood, and they used to have the clock, the two-minute clock in the bottom right corner of your screen, because that's how long the officials would be under the hood, looking at the review and then making their decision. Well, that clock disappeared pretty quickly, and, and we know how long video reviews are taking. The other thing that frustrates me, just as a sports fan, I like tennis, too. And if you've ever seen a challenge in tennis, you know it is virtually instantaneous. Now, I know those are somewhat simpler. Was the ball in? Was the ball out? You have all these cameras. You have the technology. Bang, bang. It's done. But when you can see that happen, surely to goodness, we can do something to speed things up in the other sports too, can't we? Uh, for sure, Mike. And I, I, without knowing all the ins and outs of the process, you you got to figure with the quickness of these replays coming back that and the booth officials surely there's a way to just have have that ready for the official when they get the on ice official when they get to the box and just say you know we've already looked it was in um you can take a second a quick second look whatever you like sober second thoughts you make the call whatever the case may be but the call's already basically come in yeah it's it's good or it's bad and if it's really one of those borderlines where you know you need three or four different looks and different angles to tell well sure maybe that's going to take longer but if tennis can do it in an instant with the great graphics and everything, surely there's a way to speed some of these up, especially when everyone in the building knows what happened. So I was at a game and I'm not going to name names. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad here, but I was at a game in the past week where there were a number of lengthy delays that got fans frustrated to the point of booing. So you might be about to get a deeper dive into video replay in the Ontario Hockey League than you had ever hoped for. But I think this is important to talk about and put out there in the open so that we all understand a little better. And you said something earlier, Dan, that I think is critical to all of this. There are steps in the process that we probably don't think about. If we stop and think about them, we'll be like, oh, that makes sense. So let's dive into that. A little bit. First and foremost, we know that the the bane of our existence are the men and women wearing the striped jerseys out there on the ice with the headsets on, looking at the iPads, right? So when things are taking a long time, that's where we are directing our displeasure. Fair, 
I guess, because who else are we going to direct it at? But let's be clear. Those officials and the league, by the way, want this to be done as quickly as possible. Everybody wants a fast resolution and, of course, an accurate resolution. So let's step back a few steps from there. Before that official or when that official gets over to the timekeeper's bench, puts on the headset and picks up the iPad, what if there's nothing yet on the iPad? The video that they're going to look at has to come from somewhere, right? It comes from somewhere in the building and there has to be someone in that somewhere providing the clip to the official at the timekeeper's bench. So there's step number one, right? There's gotta be another person, could be Dan, could be Mike, in a room somewhere in the arena whose job it is to provide that video to the official. Now, what if the official says, okay, this angle's not bad, but I need the angle from this camera. So then Dan or Mike somewhere in that arena has to get that next clip and get it sent down. That's assuming a couple of things. That's assuming that Dan and Mike know how to do their jobs really well, are up to speed with the technology, and, oh, the technology itself is working. I've been in some arenas in this league, particularly this year, that have gotten me a little bit frustrated. Guelph, on Sound, I'm looking at you, where you can't get Wi-Fi to save your life. I don't know if these iPads are relying on the Wi-Fi in the building or they're somehow hardwired to the timekeeper's bench. I don't know. So now you have another layer to this onion. You've got somebody somewhere in the arena that we hope is well-trained enough to have the clips ready, clips multiple because the officials may need more than one. They have to have that clip ready. They have to send it through the technology, down to the iPad. And now we have to make sure that the Wi-Fi or whatever it is that's transmitting that signal is also working well. Any one of those little steps that breaks down means the official on the ice is standing there with the headset. And I know the joke is, what are they doing? Making dinner arrangements? They are dying. Every second to them must feel like 10 minutes. They want to get it. Well, yeah, and thanks for that debrief, Mike, because I think that's that's the key message here is is patience and be reasonable. I think we live in a bit of a society now where people are quick to complain and judge and everyone's an idiot, everyone's incompetent, someone must be screwing things up. And that's the initial reaction. And, you know, your example, Mike, I can bring that a real world one we had last year coaching minor hockey where the timekeeper not, did not show up. So a parent who happened to be standing on the glass on that side of the rink offered to do it. No training, didn't know how to work it, was figuring it out as they went. And it just so happened that the penalty portion of the clock wasn't working. So when we got to a penalty, couldn't get it up on the board. If the on-ice officials, the refs had to come over to the booth, were trying to help them with it. Crowd started getting restless. People were yelling, oh, come on, refs, let's go, figure it out, let's go. They started yelling at the timekeeper, let's go, let's go. Well, for one, the technology wasn't working. Two, it was not a trained individual. It was a complete volunteer trying to figure it out as they go, which just compounded the issue. And the whole time I'm sitting there behind the bench just saying, I wish I had a bullhorn here to yell over at the crowd. Chill. Like there are things going on here that you're not aware of. It's not the fault of the rest. It's not the fault of the person working the clock. These things happen. So I think the lesson here, Mike, is maybe a healthy dose of patience here and maybe give people the benefit of the doubt. People are trying to make this quick. People are trying to do the right thing. So how much of an inconvenience is it? Uh, we like to think that people are taking it seriously. I think for the most part they are, but let's just have a little bit of patience here. I think that's a perfect analogy. What a great way to 
remind us, right, the importance of maybe just taking that breath, having that little bit of patience and understanding. Now, I'm I'm also going to add to that, though, because I hope that having this conversation, we can impress upon the league itself. So I'm looking right there into Scarborough, into the league offices and saying, let's make sure that these crews within the game are well trained, that they know so that, you know, and, and there's a probably a backup and maybe even a backup to the backup. Let's hope there's some redundancy built in so that when somebody falls ill or somebody can't show up one night or gets stuck in the weather, somebody else is able to step in because these things are important. You don't want fans getting restless. You don't want them, you know, maybe it's their first game. You don't want their experience to be such that, oh, this game moves too slow. They spend too much time with this. They don't have their crap together, for lack of a better term. And, you know, it wasn't as enjoyable an experience for the fans. So let's remind the league how important this is. And I know we're getting into some like minutiae when it comes to detail here, like the, the micro details of the game, but I think they matter. They matter to the fan experience. And if we're serving the fan or super serving the fan, we've got a better product across the board. So the league, I think it understands how important this is. I get the sense too, Dan, I do that the individual member clubs, the 20 teams in this league are also taking it seriously, ensuring that the people doing the jobs know how to do the job and know that it's an important job to do. I'm going to go back to something I said a moment ago about knowing how lucky I am to be able to go to these games 68 times a year, plus playoffs, other games if I want to, because I get media credentials. As a fan of the game, I love that. But I'm taken back to when I first started out in this business. And in fact, when I was still in college studying broadcasting, I got to do my co-op placement with global television. And I just, Eugene McElhaney was one of the best guys to me in this business from day one, was so kind to me during that co-op experience. But he also gave me legitimate experiences to do. And for five weeks, I was on the truck that produced Hockey Night in Canada. I got to go to Maple Leaf Gardens. Just imagine a Leafs fan. I'm a young kid just trying to start out in broadcasting. And I'm at Maple Leaf Gardens in the arena setting up before a game. And then Bob Cole and Harry Neal are coming into the rink. I got to do one of my shifts was taping or being on the other side of the camera for Coach's Corner. So like almost as near for me to touch, it's Ron McLean and Don Cherry. I could go on and on. I was geeking out, but I had to remind myself, hey, hang on, you're here for a reason, even though it's co-op, you're doing a job in this environment right now. So again, I'm sure the league takes this seriously. I've kicked a few tires around the league, and I understand that the teams take this very seriously. It's just a good reminder. I know we're all excited to be at the game, to be maybe in that video booth, you get a free ticket to the game. You probably get to eat something. You probably get a little bit of money, some gas money or something to put in your pocket. But as exciting as it is, and as much as you want to be a part of that game experience, you're not there to be a fan. You are there to do a job. Again, I think by and large, that's what we're getting. This is a good opportunity for us to remind everyone of that. These roles, however minor they seem to be, are important. Yeah, very much so, Mike. Being being prepared is the key there, right? Maybe have a dry run or two before the season or during the season. We have a few of those staff. Let's work through some scenarios. The Wi-Fi drops. 
you have to get a different angle. Let's work through some of these things. So when it happens in a game, you got three or four people that know what to do, know exactly what to do. So yeah, being prepared is a big part of it. And the last thing I want to add to this, I know I told you, this is probably a deeper dive than you ever expected when it comes to video review in the Ontario Hockey League. But we also have to be willing to accept some level of criticism for our essentially forward-facing roles. Again, maybe it's maybe it's the officials on the ice. They're going to take the brunt of the criticism if something goes wrong, but maybe it's that person behind the scenes. And I'm going to include myself in this, right? I, I get flack from time to time, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. I was dog shit on Friday night versus the Erie Otters. I was horrible on the broadcast. I was. I know I just said dog shit on the podcast, but it's my podcast. I'll say whatever the heck I want. I, I was I like I came home and I like I felt I knew I had done a bad job. And just to drive home the point, our bus driver the next day when we were loading the bus to go to Owen Sound said, what the hell was with you two monkeys last night? He he was criticized. I'm like, you know what? I don't know. I was dog shit. That's the God's honest truth. I think I did better on Saturday, but some nights I'm not having a good night. Some nights the referees and the lines people aren't having good nights. Some nights, somebody behind the scenes whose name we don't know is not having a good night. It's okay, but we have to understand that the importance, the gravitas of our role means that sometimes we're going to be criticized. I'll take it. I get it a fair bit. And when I'm bad, I'll let you I'll let you know how bad I was. I was dog shit last Friday. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, honest admission there, Mike. But re the reality is we all are at times. And the funny thing is you'd hate to be called on it every single time you, you do have an off night because you might have 20 on nights and you don't want to have one bad one in here about that. So I think the overall role, we'll turn this into the semi Mr. Rogers podcast for a moment and just say kindness goes a long way. I like it. I like it a lot. And maybe what else might go a little bit down that path too is perhaps not showing the replays in-house while they're still trying to determine the call on the ice if the officials are still over there at the timekeeper's bench let's just put something we can do kiss cams we can we can do lots of things let's not put the replays up on the screen because then every fan in the building is already gonna, going to make the determination for themselves and that'll make them even more restless uh, yeah, you know, Mike, it might not even work, though, because I was watching the New York Rangers uh, play the Boston Bruins on the weekend, and there was a goal review that clearly went in the net. Every replay showed it clear as day, and the Boston fans were booing at every replay because they were showing it during the review, and every time they showed it, they booed louder as, the, as though the 20,000 didn't see what everyone on TV was seeing. So maybe it's just a lack of an HD uh, screen in the Boston <laughs> facility or something, but but the crowd was not settling down at viewing. So I, I don't think any good can come of showing the crowd that replay while it's under review. Absolutely true. All right, we've still got a scheduling oddity, the email inbox and our prospects of the week to come on this week's episode of the OHL podcast. You would have thought we've done it all already. I told you, a deeper dive than you ever expected on a video replay in the OHL. of really great emails that uh, that came in over the past week let's start with jonathan's and <laughs> i love it look every re every rink has its own 
I guess, unique bit of character when it comes to goal celebrations or goal songs or whatever. Sarnia's big on the yep when they score a goal. Uh, Jonathan's email. First of all, he says he loves the podcast. Jonathan, thank you for that. Send emails anytime, whether they're complimentary or not, to ohlpodcast at rogers.com. He notes the Oshawa Kitchener game last week. He was listening on the Radio Player Canada app, which is awesome, but he could hear the goal horn, which was basically a train horn. Uh, and he said it was as loud as anything he's ever heard in any rink. I think it was pretty close to our broadcast location. I don't know if Mr. Tulio and the schwa, the gens are doing that to us on purpose, but maybe they could relocate it. I don't know. There's a big noisy train horn up in Sudbury too. <laughs> well, Mike, I'm a Habs fan. I got to admit there, there's a fine line between cheering, cheering, getting the crowd enthused and obnoxious. And that goal horn at the bell center is great for the, first five seconds for the next 25 it's like come on shut that thing off and and i and the the yips and the the woos that you hear from the boston announcer the carolina announcer i think that crosses the line into obnoxious too so yeah there's there's let's just this is not cross the line exactly it came from an ados i just noticed that um yeah jonathan's email he had a, a phone number attached to it and it came from the 807 area code. That's up in my old stomping grounds of Thunder Bay. So way to go, Jonathan, jumping in here. And then Joe, our good buddy Joe, who is our listener from Rhode Island, who has uh, written on more than one occasion. And is always like, Joe loves this league, you can tell. He used to cover the queue a little bit, or at least follow it from his perch in Rhode Island. And really enjoyed our talk about the Northern teams and the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds and that organization, we kind of pumped its tires and deservedly so the other week. But Joe emailed after that and then said, speaking of Northern teams, uh, what's the latest update on the Sudbury Arena situation? I know the city recently scrapped plans to build a new rink on the Kingsway and team owner Dario Zulik has indicated that he doesn't intend on staying at the old barn on Elgin for much longer. This has been an incredibly contentious issue in Sudbury, and I'm concerned that the team's future in the Nickel City could be compromised if Mr. Zulich doesn't get his new rink and soon. That's a really good question, Joe. I'll, I'll start with this. I don't think there's any danger of the team leaving Sudbury. I, heaven forbid that something like that would happen. Uh, we, we had uh, a guest on the podcast earlier this season who had just written on 50 years of Sudbury Wolves hockey in the Ontario Hockey League as they mark that anniversary. But the arena issue is an interesting one. There was a project out on the Kingsway that team owner Dario Zulich really did want. Uh, the city had earmarked about $90 million for it. But ultimately the cost, stop me if you've heard this one before, ballooned to more than $200 million. City says, whoa, that's not happening. So now, as far as I understand it, and I kicked some tires up in Sudbury this past week too, the city still has money earmarked about that $90 million for a new arena, but the city wants it downtown. Dario still wants it out in the Kingsway. So what's ultimately going to happen? I'm not sure, but I don't know about you, Dan. I still don't think that they'll have to figure this out. I don't think the team's going to threaten to leave, but I, I stand to be corrected on that. No, I don't think it's leaving. That that's a that's a rock solid community for for OHL hockey. I don't think it's going anywhere. But it's the uh, story as old as time, right? Where a discrepancy between what the owner wants and what the municipality wants, and 
my only advice to both sides can sound as obvious as it comes, but delaying and dithering, it's not going to make the situation better. Uh, you're best to figure it out sooner than later because delays just mean costs go up. Sides get further apart. It always costs everyone more. So, so I think they will come to a resolution, Mike, you're right. But, uh, but let's try this sooner than later. I don't think Sudbury is going anywhere. I would like to think that in a community like Sudbury that has supported the Wolves like it has for as long as it has, that this is just a win for everyone concerned, right? You you build the new arena that has the nicer amenities, that has more seats, that generates more revenue. I think ultimately your investment pays off here, doesn't it? That's Again, I, I'll just connect it to what we were talking about when we talked about the Sioux. And I said then and will again, if if I had the money looking at the way they conduct themselves in Sault Ste. Marie, it makes me want to buy into the Ontario Hockey League. If you can make it work there and, you know, continue generating some revenue, why would I, I would buy into it. So I, I would hope that Sudbury could create a similar situation. Yeah, Mike, I don't know of too many of these communities that have built these facilities and regretted it. And you look at this where Sudbury is located, it, it, sure, it's a bit north, but it, it would be a hub for how much distance around there. So, I, I, yeah, and I don't know the ins and outs of the property right around the current arena, but it sure looks to me like there's some space down there to make it happen. So, yeah, I agree with you, Mike. I don't I don't think you can go wrong doing it here. So you might both sides might need to to loosen their stance a little here and just make it happen. Shout out to the Old Rock Roaster, which is the coffee shop right across the street from the Sudbury Arena. And if they move the arena, they better move the Old Rock with it. Because uh, I don't know what I'm going to do if I can't get a coffee at the Old Rock right before I go into the hockey arena. I love that place. On the point, it just made me think of it, of the price tag and then the price tag ballooning, which scuttled the project. I'll remind you a decade ago. There was an expansion and renovation done at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium where they added another thousand seats, basically raised the roof on the one side of the building. It's the third reno in the history of the, the arena. They can't they can't do any more. They, they have maxed out what they can do from an architectural slash engineering standpoint. But there was talk before this began of a new arena. And what ended up happening in Kitchener, because it's a two-tier local municipality, so you've got the, the city and then you've got the region above it, but so many different interests got excited about the idea. And, well, we should have this and we should have that, and it's going to be for conference space, it's going to be event space, it's going to be entertainment center, blah, blah, blah. The cost went from 70-ish million to about 135 million, and that scuttled it in Kitchener as well. And then they said at the time, in 10 to 15 years, they'll be talking about the new rink. So here we are 10 years later, ain't nobody talking about a new rink because nobody right now is taking on that kind of a project. Yeah, and, and people get excited about these things, Mike, because it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime shot. If you're a politician, it could be your legacy. For a community, it's a legacy as well. So you, you want to get it right, and you want to make sure it has everything you want it to have for 20, 30 years down the road. So there's a lot of discussion that goes in. But all of these folks making these decisions cannot lose sight of the key fact that you need to get it done, period. That's the key thing. Get it done. Make some sacrifices if you need to be, but you can dream all you want. But until the bricks and mortar are there, you you haven't accomplished anything. So thanks to Joe in Rhode Island and Jonathan up in the 807, which is Northwestern Ontario, for sending an email, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. Whatever you want to say, we'll definitely 
respond and share it on the next episode of the podcast. Just before we get to our prospects of the week, uh, Stan Butler returned to Kitchener for the first time since returning to the league as the coach of the Erie Otters. Uh, when you catch Stan in a talkative mood, which is more often now than it even used to be, uh, sometimes in the past it was, you know, game face on. And every once in a while you'd get lucky enough to have a chat, but Stan seems to be in, in a chatty mood since he got back to the league, which I love. But <laughs> So he, while in Kitchener and getting the chance to chat, Stan talked about an eight-game road trip that his team had been on, the Erie Otters, in the month of February. Just have a listen to this it starts february the 5th it ends on february the 23rd obviously they go home in between but it would have been a game in oshawa then a saginaw london trip which was a wednesday friday then a north bay sudbury sioux trip which was a thursday friday saturday followed by an owen sound berry trip which i believe was a wednesday thursday but whatever the case may be Oshawa, Saginaw, London, North Bay, Sudbury, Sioux, Owen Sound, Barrie. Eight in a row on the road, leaving ahead by a day, so you're not traveling all day before a game, obviously, or on game day. Going back to Erie in between. Stan says the team could have traveled to Florida and back. That's the distance that the league made them travel over eight games in the month of February. How many kids do you think had trouble keeping up with their schoolwork? Oh, yeah. And I, I speaking of, I bet you Stan Butler's family, if they need to see him, they just need to stand on the Burlington Skyway and wave. He's going by every five minutes, it seems. And they must get, I was thinking the other day, they must get awfully sick of that highway. But, uh, but yeah, it's, we talked a lot about the Sioux and some of these other destinations, which were on the fringes of the league geographically. But Erie, they have some challenges as well because they're always crossing that same border, the same highway, and heading the same way before they fan out to wherever they have to go. So, it can be a grind for these kids. So like we talked about with the officials too, you sometimes grant them some slack if they're not on their A game on a given night. Well, give them some credit this past weekend. They came to Kitchener and laid what I would call a bit of an egg. I'm just being honest. They were not great versus the Rangers on a Friday night. And it was a night that the biggest snowstorm of the winter hit Southern Ontario. Uh, for those of you listening stateside, a foot for those of you on this side of the border in the metric system, 27 centimeters of snow. So just under a foot stateside. But anyway, ton of snow. They come to Kitchener. They play poorly. They battle that weather to go back home. Arrived home about four in the morning Saturday. Had to play the Pete's on Saturday night at Erie Insurance Arena. Bounce back with a win. And then they had to leave Erie again, cross back into Canada to play the Hamilton Bulldogs on Sunday afternoon. The league did give them two hours grace, shifting that Sunday game from 2 until 4 p.m. They lost, but they did lead in the third. So after a poor start and battling some bad weather, give the Otters some credit for at least showing up the rest of the weekend. Yeah, and for those unfamiliar with the geography of all of this, that was essentially a yo-yo trip because Hamilton is, you know, 80% of the way back to Kitchener where they were the night before from Erie. So same trip, uh, and they did delay that start on the Sunday game by two hours, maybe maybe figuring two hours was going to make a difference for those those kids from Erie or due to the snow or whatnot, but, uh, but a grind for them for sure. All right, let's get into our uh, prospects for this week. Before we wrap things up, who you got for us, Jansky? Well, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's okay, Mike, to go with a goalie two weeks in a row. But we had an emailer from Thunder Bay, and I think he'll appreciate this because my guy is Nate Krawchuk. 
this week. Going to go with the goaltender from the Sudbury Wolves draft in the U18 draft. Putting up a, a terrific season. Save percentage right around the 900 mark. Just over three on the goals against. More impressively, his record at 12-6 and six with a shutout. The Sudbury Wolves have been humming along since, since the trade deadline despite uh, some moves to be sellers and whatnot. So they're they're right in the thick of that thing, that race, Mike. And when you talk about the point separation, a couple more uh, big games from the goaltender of the month in the OHL, and that team could be flirting with that uh, home ice advantage, the fourth, fifth. We're in seventh right now, but we're talking a point or two separating everyone. So so my guy is Nate Krawchuk, Mike. Who you got? I have, uh, going a little off the board this time too, we haven't talked about him yet as far as I know. I'm going Joey Willis from the Saginaw Spirit. We talked about Saginaw earlier, obviously, Having clinched uh, a playoff spot, they did that thanks to a 7-3 win over the Kingston Frontenacs, which ended a three-game road trip during which the Spirit went 2-0-0-1. Yeah, because they shoot out loss. I always I hate the four columns. But anyway, uh, they win in Peterborough. They take Ottawa to a shootout. And then they win in Kingston kind of on the way home, if you will. And... Joey Willis is on the score sheet in every game, three goals, three assists over the three games. And he is my guy as the prospect of the week. Keep in mind. So Joey came in, this is playing as a rookie, even though it's his draft year, uh, 13 points in his first 13 games. And then obviously things have tailed off over the next 47 games for him, but it's first year in the league. A little bit of a, an oddity, but it's kind of interesting. When Joey Willis records a point, the Saginaw Spirit are 15 and 9. And again, 2-0-0 and 1 with Willis picking up uh, six points, three goals, and three assists in his past three games. So good for him. Joey Willis is my prospect of the week. Yeah, good call. And that same Joey Hillis, who I, I don't remember exactly, but I want to say something, 10 or 11 points in his first five or six games. He was on a really hot start to start the year, right at the top of the score scoring pages for the OHL. So nice to see him coming back around later in the season. All right. As we look ahead to Friday's episode of the OHL podcast, the one that features our feature guest, this one, I admit, is selfish, but he was the captain of the Guelph Storm when I started broadcasting in the Ontario Hockey League. So we kind of, well, he was the captain of the first team that I covered officially for Rogers TV in the Ontario Hockey League. He played for London the year that Dale Hunter took over as head coach. So maybe he can answer that question of how the hell does Dale do it? And to make things even more interesting, well, aside from his stint in the American League with or in the National League at a camp with guys like Forsberg, Sakic, Tangay, and Korea. Uh, he also is still playing the game all these years later. Hey, I'm still broadcasting it. Maybe he should still be playing it. So there's what we will tell you about our uh, feature guest coming up on Friday. Can't wait, Mike. Getting some good <laughs> ones this year. I like to try to give you as much information as I can without giving it all away. See if you can figure that out before our next episode on Friday. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell. Email us anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. And please like, subscribe, tell a friend. Let us know what you think. We're always happy to hear from you. The next episode of the OHL Podcast coming out on Friday. Do, 
did will the story of people podcast is now available on the crier media network the first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories ready tara sloan from the san jose sharks undercurrent podcast at nbc sports Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.